So throughout the retreat so far, Greg and I have really been pointing to or emphasizing the need for a balance in our practice. And I've mentioned a couple of times that the Buddha framed all of his teachings in terms of the middle way, which means not falling into self-indulgence on one hand, or self-punishment, self-mortification in the form of excessive striving on the other hand. And learning how to stay balanced throughout the changing circumstances of our lives and our practice is one way of framing the overall goal of what we're doing here. So tonight I'd like to talk about an aspect of our practice where it's particularly easy to get out of balance, and that's in relation to effort or energy, virya, to use the Pali word. So virya is usually translated as effort or energy, sometimes also translated as heroic effort or tireless energy, strength, courage, vigor, perseverance, and persistence. And the, ver- the word virya has the same root as the English words virile and warrior. Those of you who are familiar with yoga, you might know the pose, the hero's pose or the warrior's pose, virabhadrasa. Vira Bhadrasana takes heroic effort just to say it. Vira, Vira Bhadrasana. Yeah, the warrior's pose. That's the same V-I-R is related to heroic effort, tireless energy. And this quality is referred to over and over throughout the Buddha's teachings. As many of you know, he taught a lot using the device of numbered lists partly because the teachings were transmitted orally for a long time and this was a device that made them easier to memorize. So this quality of virya or energy effort, it shows up in many of these lists. For example, it's one of the five spiritual faculties that Greg referred to sadha or faith as one of them. Virya or energy is another and you can see them on that stained glass window up there. Virya is also one of the seven factors of awakening, the skillful states of mind that, when in balance, create the best conditions for the deepest insights to arise. Virya is also one of the ten paramis, the ten qualities of character that we can uh, work on in daily life. And in the form of right effort, it's also one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path the path to freedom that uh, is the path that all of us are walking here. So before I go any further with this exploration, I'd like to take a moment just to pause and to invite you to notice if there are any particular responses in your body, your heart, your mind, when you hear phrases such as tireless energy, right effort, heroic effort, perseverance. So for some people, a common response when hearing about effort or energy might be some form of, oh no, here we go. This is going to be like a performance review and 
They're going to be implying that I'm not trying hard enough and I'll be hearing all those stories about how in Burma where we do the real practice you only have three hours sleep a night. In fact, I feel exhausted even thinking about that. I think I'll go to bed straight after the talk's finished. For other people, the response might be more like, finally, now we're getting to the real practice. Enough of all that fluffy compassion and meta stuff. I'm going to really crank it up now because there's only 10 days left. I'm going to try for three hours sleep tonight. And for other people, there might not be much response at all. You might be abiding in equanimity. So whatever your response was, just to sort of know that, to bookmark it as possibly useful information for later in the talk. I invited you to look at it because for some, for many of us, this word effort does bring up um, views and self-views that can drive our practice in ways that perhaps aren't so skillful if they're not seen, if they're uh, in the background. So why is virya or energy effort so important? Well, on one level, it's obvious. It takes sometimes a surprising amount of effort to do this practice. You know, people who don't know much about meditation, when you tell them you're going on retreat, they say, oh, have a nice time. Be so relaxing. Days and days not doing anything. It should be easy. But just to get here takes a huge amount of effort. And then once we're here to keep showing up, day after day, hour after hour, moment after moment. It's incredible how much effort it takes at times. And because we're human beings, we don't have an unlimited supply of energy. So we need to learn how to apply our energy and effort skillfully. And again, that's why the Buddha taught this middle way between extremes. Not too little, not too much, just right. It's surprising, though, how difficult it can be to find this middle way, this midpoint, perhaps because uh, for many of us, our dominant culture is one of perfectionism and competitiveness and striving and busyness and doing. So when we hear phrases like right effort, it can easily trigger a sense of judgment of not good enough. At least that was true for me early on in my practice when I heard talks about right effort, I did immediately think blood, sweat, and tears. And I didn't realize that um, I was fixating so much on the effort part that I completely missed the right part of right effort. And since I've been teaching, I've seen this um, tendency to be somewhat unbalanced in a lot of students too, where we seem to have this habit of starting out with a very black and white approach. It's like all or nothing. We do seem to be very dualistic creatures somehow, and um, we often start out with an excess of zeal that isn't very sustainable in the long run. So making too much effort is one way that we get out of balance. And on retreat, this can show up as starting off with a phase of intense striving, We try extra hard to show up with every sitting and every walking and we push ourselves to get up early and stay up late. And perhaps this lasts for a day or two, but usually it's followed by a collapse into sort of exhausted apathy. Then perhaps there's a day or two of recovery and then the whole cycle starts all over again. 
So we swing between striving and apathy and striving and apathy. And I've seen this so many times that I, I started to call it superhero to slug syndrome because we kind of charge ahead with this heroic effort. But then because it's not sustainable, we go backwards and become a slug again. So we need to learn to recognize when we're forcing the practice in some way. For example, I sometimes ask when you hear the bell at the end of the sitting, is there a sense of, oh, thank God, this wave of relief? If so, that might be a sign that you were trying a little bit too hard because the moment before the bell rings and the moment after the bell rings are equal opportunities to be mindful. It's not that the ones marked within the sitting period are any more valuable. And so this morning when I introduced Utejaniya's two hands touching, just that very lightness of knowing, that's the kind of effort that we need that is much more sustainable. On the other hand, for some people, when they hear the bell ring, they might suddenly wake up and realize they've been asleep for the last 42 and a half minutes. So that might be a sign of the other extreme of perhaps not making enough effort. And when the energy is really low like that, it's uh, referred to as sinking mind, when we're just in this kind of foggy, this is the terrain of sloth and torpor. I think most of us are familiar with the animal, the sloth from wildlife documentaries. But uh, closer to home, I think of it as being like koala mind. So you're familiar with koalas and they sit in a tree and they're just kind of hugging the trunk. And it's like they've got just enough energy to not fall out of the tree, but that's about it. I don't know about you, but sometimes that's how my meditation sessions feel when there's this imbalance of energy so what we're learning here is getting to know our default patterns and to see them without getting caught in self-judgment because self-judgment just uses up more energy in a totally counterproductive way most of us tend to fall more to one side of the scale than the other towards either too much effort or too tight and that's completely normal even the buddha to be before he became fully enlightened he struggled for many years to find the right balance in relation to effort so i'd like to just give you a, a short overview of the story of his life because i think it's illustrates so beautifully how this finding balance in relation to energy is something that all of us need to learn how to work with. So according to the discourses, the Buddha-to-be, who was known back then as Siddhartha Gautama, he started off um, in a very living a very luxurious life. The story goes that he was born a prince in northern India, and so he was able to live a life of total ease, total luxury, and he was able to indulge in every kind of sense pleasure imaginable. Then at about the age of 26, 28, something like that, he recognized that his life, this wasn't a particularly meaningful way to live his life. And he went through a kind of an existential crisis. 
he ended up renouncing this life of luxury and he left the palace and became a hardcore ascetic, a wandering monk. And in this phase, he spent about seven years practicing the most intense and rigorous spiritual practices that were available to him in India. This was 2,600 years ago. And back then, most of these practices seemed to involve different ways of torturing the body. There was a belief that this was a, a way to rid oneself of sense desire and sort of purify the mind by subduing the body. So these practices, by our standards, were quite extreme. Things like holding the breath until we almost lose consciousness or sleeping on beds of nails or not sleeping at all and severely reducing how much food we take in. And the Buddha-to-be was a very good student, a very determined student. And it's said that he practiced all of these practices actually to the point of death before he realized that perhaps this wasn't so useful, that it wasn't actually working. He had actually collapsed. Um, and it's said that he started to think that he realized this isn't working and he started to reassess what he was doing. And it said that he had a spontaneous memory of being about six or seven years old and he was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree when he spontaneously slipped into a state of deep concentration, deep absorption known as jhana. And this mental pleasure was in his memory when he rem he remembered it, he realized, could this be the way? Is this the missing piece? It was actually that mental pleasure was what was needed and so he realized that he'd gone from the extreme of living in a palace and total indulgence to the other extreme of hardcore asceticism and actually the middle way was what was needed so most of us today are not into those kind of extreme torture of the body practices but as, I sh as I've shared with many of you, Joseph Goldstein points out that what is very common is a kind of psychological self-torture, perhaps because of that um, social and cultural conditioning towards idealism and perfectionism and busyness. Most of us do have quite strong um, judging and criticizing habits, constantly undermining ourselves, pushing ourselves. So we need to find for ourselves what's the appropriate balance. And different students need different instructions. So in the Buddha's teachings, he gave the analogy, uh, he was talking to a student who had been really winding himself up tight. So even back then, people could fall into the habit of striving. And this uh, monk who was trying too hard his name was Sona, and in a previous, before he became a monk, he'd been a lute player. And he went to the Buddha for advice, and the Buddha said to him, Well, Sona, when you were a lute player, if you wanted a beautiful sound, did you tune the strings tight? And of course the answer is no. Did you tune them loose? Again, no. We need to find exactly the right degree of um, tightness or looseness, the midpoint. 
And I like that analogy because it's about listening. And in the same way, we need to listen to ourselves, to our own bodies, our own hearts, our own minds, to find out what's the midpoint, what's the balance, how do we tune ourselves metaphorically. And just as with an instrument, we can't just tune the instrument once and then stick it in the corner and next time we play it, it'll still be in tune. Circumstances, conditions are constantly changing. So the amount of energy and effort in this sitting compared to the one first thing in the morning may be quite different. If we're sick, again, we'll be different. As we age, again, it's going to change. So we have to be constantly listening to ourselves to find that balance. So as I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, how to balance out our own practice, I'll talk some about um, ways to offset a tendency to be too tight and then ways to offset the tendency to be too loose. And when I, whenever I give this talk, I always wish there was some way I could say, okay, all the people who are strivers, you go outside now and don't listen to this piece. And all the people who are kind of a bit too complacent, you stay in here and you listen. But what actually happens is that all the complacent people hear the stuff about lightening up and go, yes, I think I'll just lie in tomorrow. And all the people who are strivers hear the stuff about making heroic effort and say, right, I'm getting two hours sleep tonight. I know from my own experience that we tend to hear what we want to hear. So if you can, see if you cannot do that and just listen to the part that's most appropriate for you. So I'll start with a tendency towards making too much effort. And this shows up as a very goal-oriented attitude to our practice. We're constantly looking for results and getting impatient when these don't show up fast enough. We, got, we get caught in expectations about how our practice is supposed to unfold and how it's supposed to look and what's supposed to be happening. And usually what's actually happening is quite different from what we think is supposed to be happening So then we experience the flip side of expectation, which is disappointment, self-judgment, doubt. A lot of anxiety of energy then gets consumed by anxiety, and we wonder if we're doing it right, and we compare ourselves to other people. So striving often results in feelings of self-judgment, inadequacy, anxiety, and so on, that can turn our meditation into a massive self-improvement project. So there's a whole painful cycle of feeling unworthy and trying harder and not getting it and so on and so on. So in order to get out of this cycle, we have to see, to really know what's happening in the body, the heart, the mind, how are we relating to the experience. So that's why that last question is so crucial, to keep seeing What's the attitude in the mind? And if there's some form of wanting or expectation, or perhaps some form of not wanting or resistance, that might be a sign of getting caught in expectations. So sometimes this over-efforting is just so much our default conditioning that we don't even see it. 
And you might even ask yourself, well, who would I be if I didn't make so much effort? Who would I be if I wasn't making so much effort? Just to drop in that question and see. And when I've done this for myself, sometimes I end up touching a quite unconscious, deep-rooted fear of some kind. That I'll end up backsliding or becoming that slug person that I used to be. So if that's true for you, to see if you can meet that with compassion, with self-compassion, to not take it personally, because so much of this is coming from our dominant culture conditioning rather than it's not our own individual shortcomings or our unique neurosis. So can we relate to these striving patterns with kindness? So that's... uh, the striving side of the pendulum, and on the other side is the complacency or lack of effort, which may, for some of us, be maybe more of our default pattern. So on one level, it's natural that, of course, we, we love comfort, we want to feel at ease, and if we were given the choice, most of us would quite happily stay in our comfort zones forever if we could. So the Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa, he complained about his students saying that they were like marsupials. Every time he asked them to wake up, they would just wriggle back into the pouch. And I think all of us can relate to that in some way. There's something in all of us who would love to just wriggle back into the pouch and stay there. But the problem with that is that even if it were possible... The downside of staying within our comfort zones is that over time they get smaller and smaller. And even on retreat, when our options are quite limited, we it's amazing how quickly we develop strategies for staying comfortable. We might have our favorite seat in the dining room or our favorite place to do our walking or our favorite clothes that we wear. We set up a routine for ourselves of when to nap and when to shower and when to take tea and when to have a snack. And if our routine gets thrown off in some way, we can get surprisingly upset. Or at least that has been true for me at times. And as meditation becomes more and more mainstream in some of the ways it's presented, it's, um, it can be unconsciously or consciously presented as just another way to get cozy, just another way to take the pressure off our lives and to um, mindfulness is sometimes presented as a kind of magic wand that you wave over a lot your life and suddenly everything will be okay. And then in these settings, mindfulness might be presented as a, a form of self-care that's just about um, making ourselves feel better. And this at times can be very skillful and beneficial, but what we're doing here is really trying to find that balance so that this, um, because I know for myself how easy it is for self-care to slide into self-indulgence. So there's been times, particularly on longer retreats, where I've um, thought, well, you know, I've put in a pretty good effort and Maybe for the next sitting, I'll just uh, ease up a bit and take a little bit of a nap. And then the nap extends into the walking. and I So I do maybe half the walking and then 
I end up, rather than sit, walk, sit, walk, it becomes sit one, nap one, sit a half, nap a half. And it's amazing how this slippery slope can um, end up being more on the side of napping than actually practicing. So on one level, we might tell ourselves, well, I've been working hard and it's uh, it's a kind thing to take care of myself. But again, we can see, is this really true? And there may be some sittings when it is, when actually the very best thing we could do for ourselves would be to rest. But the key is to, are we doing it with awareness and mindfulness or are we doing it out of rationalization and habit? So that's the, the piece to notice. Because if the default strategy is always to avoid discomfort, then when we do run into one of life's inevitable challenges, we won't have the inner resources to meet it. And it's true that here and now, even in this setting, there are things we can do to alleviate our discomfort. But at some point, remembering the heavenly messengers of old age and sickness and death, we're going to have to face into some relatively serious challenges. And so it makes sense to be metaphorically building the, the muscles, building the strength to meet those challenges before we need them. So here we have a very valuable opportunity to um, train in stretching our comfort zones just a little. So we can train in meeting physical discomfort with more and more ease, but also train in gently expanding our mental comfort zones. So learning how to manage um, challenges and how to explore some of the ways that we do try to stay in our mental comfort zones by clinging to our views and our opinions and our perceptions, our judgments, our beliefs, our self-identities. So sometimes when we hear this invitation to practice working with discomfort, we might notice some reactivity, perhaps even some kind of fear. And then is the invitation to consciously call up this heroic energy, perhaps also to remember the aspirations that you wrote on Friday to reorient, to recommit or reconnect to whatever that aspiration was. So we can try and strengthen those inner resources. But as I think you all know, there are also times on the path where the challenges um, can become more intense. And if we don't feel to have the necessary virya or courage within ourselves... Sometimes, for myself, it's been helpful to consciously bring to mind uh, the example of my teachers. So to remember some of the teachers that I feel a sense of confidence in, a sense that they have walked this terrain, that they're on this same journey and have been through some of the challenges that I'm currently facing. And as far as I can see, appear to have come out the other side in good shape. So using the role models of people we know can be a, a way of helping us uh, stay steady when times get challenging. 
We might also look at the arc of our own practice and see that over time we have developed, we have strengthened, these qualities are growing. And so even if in the moment it feels a little bit rocky, we can trust that there is a point and a purpose and a benefit to going through these challenges. We might even begin to recognize that although part of us would love to just sit in bliss states for hour after hour, that the times when we face into challenges and overcome them are actually the times where our practice really strengthens and deepens. And so we might start to appreciate that the times of challenge are also the times of greatest reward. So I think maybe it was this morning one or the other of us mentioned how sometimes the practice is framed in terms of cycles of purity and purification. And this is the understanding that uh, there are natural cycles or rhythms that the practice goes through. So the purification stage is when we're dealing with these um, inner challenges of various kinds. And when we manage to meet them, often there's a phase of release, of ease, of calm, of stability of mind, well-being, equanimity, and so on. And when we happen to be in one of those phases, the very common tendency is to think, yes, this is it. Now I've got it. Now finally my practice has got somewhere And usually the assumption is that, okay, this is how it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. And I think we all know that that's not often the case. Often, sometimes in the very next sitting, there's a, almost feels like a backlash. So one teacher said, there's nothing that ruins your retreat quite so much as having a really good sitting. There's that sense of, the setup that we get for expectations when we've had one of these phases of purity. The purification phase is when suddenly we find ourselves almost in the opposite and the mind becomes like barbed wire and we're seething with resentment or aversion or boredom or lust or whatever it happens to be. And we can think, how did that happen? Where did I go wrong? But this is just the natural opening and closing, the rhythm, the cycle of the practice. And the more we go through these cycles, we more we see, okay, this is just the next phase, the next phase. And we start to have more and more equanimity for this, these cycles of purity and purification. So because these refined states, when we're in them, are skillful, it's, uh, sometimes we need to refine our mindfulness to be able to really stay in connection with them and to tune into them. Because as I've been mentioning, you know, we have this inherent negativity bias and we tend to pay much more attention to the challenging states than the uh, skillful states. So it can be helpful to consciously notice those times when we are in more ease, when there is some sense of 
kindness or calm or confidence or energy or wisdom because then they become resources and they really help to build the confidence in the path. So as we get into, we are able to release more of the intense hindrances and we start to move into more refined states. We really uh, need to refine our energy or effort too so that we don't overshoot the mark. And for many people, one of the most challenging aspects of meditation practice is the paradox that the deepest freedom comes from letting go and letting be, not from doing. But because our cultural conditioning is so much about doing, 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 sometimes when we come into these karma states, we we can get a little bit like, oh, well, what do I do now? Nothing's happening, nothing's going on. But this is because we haven't yet acquired the taste for these more subtle and more refined states of ease and peace and spaciousness. So I've shared with some of you that in the um, in the Tibetan uh, language, my understanding is that the Tibetan word that's translated as meditation literally means getting used to it. And I think that works on a lot of different levels. But in this sense, when we're in those more refined states, there is at first a way that we need to get used to them, to become familiar with them. So rather than being about doing, in this, when we're in this terrain, it's about um, stepping back and getting out of the way. So as one Zen teacher puts it, he said, enlightenment is an accident. Meditation makes you accident-prone. So it's really pointing to this letting go of trying to control or to micromanage. And when we can do that, we find ourselves, at least at times, in this kind of flow of effortless effort. And at these times, we feel like quite a spontaneous and unexpected releasing of dukkha and stress and distress. And so it's... uh, then sometimes we also notice that when we have these kind of stages, uh, there can be almost a backlash where the mind comes in and tries to own it and analyze it and work out what insight it was and where we go next and so on and so on. So again, the opportunity is to release even that. So... With practice, we learn not to get caught in any of these reactions, either the more gross ones or even the more subtle ones of clinging and identifying with experience. And we start to recognize the deeper truths about who we are. You could say that we come more into contact with our Buddha nature, our highest human capacity, It's possible when you hear that kind of language that perhaps it seems remote or abstract. But this is, again, where we might start to challenge our own sense of what's possible in the service of developing virya or effort. Can we let go of limiting self-views and really orient towards deepening and deepening of the practice? And in this regard, I feel, I do feel inspired when I think about the Buddha's life. Because I can th- look at my own life and um, 
think, well, what would, what would my own life have been like if the Buddha hadn't chosen to go beyond what his family told him was possible? You know, his father, the king, wanted him to be a king. And that was the direction he thought was appropriate. But the Buddha chose not to go there. And he chose to go beyond what society told him was possible. He he chose to go beyond what his teachers told him was possible. Even his teachers, each one, he worked with, I think, four different teachers. And each time... He practiced with them until he got to the same level and his teachers then invited him to be part, to co-teach. And each time he said, no, this isn't it. There's something more. There's something more. And even though he knew it would be difficult, he made the choice to teach what he'd learned. So if the Buddha had taken the easy option, none of us would be sitting here tonight. And that's quite amazing something his efforts 2,600 years ago have radiated out and impacted every one of us in this room. Wow, I feel quite moved. It feels quite vivid right now. So this might be a way that you bring up Virya just to think. One human being's efforts, here we are. So... We've all already started exploring this same terrain. So just let's keep going. So thank you for your attention. And I hope that um, this exploration of effort can be explored effortlessly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.